0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 5th of May for the listening week that begins the 6th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, beginning this week with current events. These taken at first from the theroot.com. It's official. State Attorney Generals are investigating alleged NFL workplace discrimination. Written by Candace McDuffie published on the 4th. Attorneys General Letitia James of New York and Rob Bonta of California will be leading the probe. On Thursday it was announced that the Attorneys General of New York and California are looking into allegations of workplace discrimination at the NFL. Attorney General Pardon me, Attorneys General Letitia James of New York and Rob Bonta of California have shared that they've issued subpoenas to NFL executives as part of a probe into work culture at the league's corporate offices in both states. The reason for investigating can be traced back to lawsuits filed by employees who claim they've been victims of sexual harassment as well as age and racial bias. Both James and Bonta are Democrats, the pair stated that they are merely exercising power to gather information from the NFL about claims of discrimination, pay inequity, and harassment. In addition, the investigation will center on the league's corporate offices, not particular players or teams. In a statement, James commented, Quote, no person should ever have to endure harassment, discrimination, or objectification in the workplace. No matter how powerful or influential, no institution is above the law, and we will ensure the NFL is held accountable. Bonta added, California will not tolerate any form of discrimination. We have serious concerns about the NFL's role in creating an extremely hostile and detrimental work environment. No company is too big or popular to avoid being held responsible for their actions. In 2022, the New York Times released a story that outlined accusations of gender discrimination from more than 30 women who are former NFL employees. Behind the Netflix Picket Line Black writers have a lot to say about pay. The route went to the Netflix picket line to ask black writers what they wanted from the ongoing WGA strike, written by Jessica Washington, published on the 4th. The early 2000s are back, and we're not talking about choker necklaces. Hollywood writers are back on strike, demanding fair pay and better working conditions. The strike began on Tuesday after contract negotiations failed, effectively calling lights out on major films and television productions nationwide. The strike didn't come out of nowhere. For years screenwriters have complained that the pivot to streaming made by television and film executives decimated pay for writers and had disastrous impacts on working conditions. Several notable black celebrities and writers have spoken out to support the strike, including Quinta Brunson, Yvette Nicole Brown, Ashley Nicole Black, and Sherry Shepherd, who spoke to The Root about her support. While many of the writers' demands are race neutral on their face, that clearly hasn't stopped black writers and celebrities from throwing their support behind the strike. The route decided to visit the picket lines to see why Black Riders are pushing pause and what they hope to achieve once the dust clears. No Netflix, no chill. It's time to pay your bills. Dark clouds hung over the dozens of WGA riders and their supporters lining the sidewalk outside of Netflix's Manhattan office. Chance of no Netflix, no chill, it's time to pay your bills, echoed throughout the crowd as cars blared their horns in support. We're doing this for everybody, says Takara Millar, a writer for The Problem with John Stewart. Although she's only been in the industry for a couple of years, Millar says she can see the way streaming and technology have impacted the industry. She says, Writing used to be a way for people in the creative field to lead a middle-class life. It's turning into a gig economy. Jamil Saleem, 41, says that the, right, pardon me, the fact that writers who work on popular shows are paid significantly less just because they're working on streaming shows versus network shows is ridiculous. I worked on a Netflix show. It was a short run. We were paid below scale, and the show ended up not going anywhere, and then I wrote on another Netflix show. Same thing, below scale, residuals very low, and now I work on a Netflix show, and I see the disparities, says Salim, co-executive producer of the hit Fox comedy Bob's Burgers. He said, it's ridiculous. Salim says, he's inspired by the number of people out there supporting fair wages, even if they're not the ones directly suffering. Salim says, I'm an upper-level writer. I'm here for the lower-level writers that are working on major shows and still struggling to pay their rent. The rampant usage of mini-rooms, M-I-N-I, mini-rooms, which are small writers' rooms often used to develop a series, is another problem for black writers who tend to have fewer connections. With these short seasons and mini-rooms, it's harder for those people moving to LA with the dream to get in there because a lot of the slots are going to nepotism hires, says Salim. Limiting mini-rooms are a crucial part of the union's demands. Are black writers getting paid enough to write black stories? Equa Msangi, a feature film writer in her 40s, says that in the wake of George Floyd's death, the industry started to greenlight more projects about people of color, but that didn't equate to fair wages. There's so many more films and shows that feature black, brown, indigenous women, LGBTQ plus people, and I think people have made the right steps in hiring us, says Misangi, but then they're not paying us what we deserve and what we can actually live on. Black writers talk supporting their families. A common theme among the black writers we spoke to was that m- many black screenwriters support their families back home with salaries that are barely enough for themselves. For black writers, your dollar has to stretch a lot more, says Randall Otis, a writer for The Daily Show. Because the net worth of your family, your immediate family, your extended family, a lot of the money you make personally goes to support a lot more people. Getting a fair wage is even more critical when the dollar has to stretch that much further. Millar shared similar sentiments and said, A lot of black people were not just supporting ourselves, we're supporting our family as well. What do the networks have to say about the strike? It probably won't shock you to learn that the major networks and streaming services like Netflix have a different view of the writer's strike. In a statement to The Root, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers claimed that they'd offered a generous package in the negotiations to the WGA, and were willing to improve the offer if the union dropped some of their sticking points. The AMPTP member companies remain united in their desire to reach a deal that is mutually beneficial to writers and the health and longevity of the industry, and to avoid hardship to the thousands of employees who depend upon the industry for their livelihoods wrote the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers in a statement. Why the new contract needs to fit the times. Otis sees the strike very differently. It seems like a very simple classic tale of business owner versus the worker and them trying to hold a disproportionate unfair share of the profits, he said. For context, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, where the protest was being held, will reportedly earn a $650,000 salary this year on top of a whopping $34 million in stock options, according to reporting from Variety. Basically, we're getting unfair contracts from these production houses, and the only way you can really express your voice and negotiate, says Otis, is by banding together with the other writers and withholding our labor. To Salim, it's obvious that the contract this time around needs to reflect the very different landscape of media ushered in by the people in positions of power. He said, I just think when that contract was first negotiated back in 07, nobody knew streaming was going to be as big as it is now, so obviously we need to rework those numbers. Editors note, the author of this story is a member of the WGA, but not a part of the Hollywood writer's division of the WGA, which is the one currently on strike. Second article on the topic from the same author Jessica Washington gives a little more detail. This was published on the fourth, no, pardon me, on the fifth. Black TV writer breaks down the dreaded mini rooms and why the Hollywood writer's strike matters. You want to profit off of diverse stories while not giving us a piece of the pie says Francesca Ramsey. Thousands of WGA screenwriters are on strike throughout the country, demanding a better deal from studio executives who say they have made billions on the backs of underpaid writers. However, the strike might be hard to follow if you're not in the television and film industry. Thankfully, Francesca Ramsey, a black writer, actor, and creator of MTV Decoded, is here to break it all down Quote, the first important thing for people to understand is that the corporations that are putting out these television shows that you love and enjoy are making billions says ramsey while the writers who build these worlds create these characters tell these stories that touch you and inspire you and make you think and make you cry are unable to make a stable living pardon me stable living The union's demands are relatively straightforward, but some of the highlights are increasing minimum compensation, creating limits on so-called mini-rooms, standardizing compensation and residuals across platforms, enacting policies to combat discrimination and harassment to promote pay equity, and ensuring appropriate compensation throughout the entire pre-production, production And post-production process. While these demands mostly appear race-neutral, Ramsey says black creators have a lot to gain if they're included in the next contract, if the demands are included in the next contract. The people who do not have familial connections, the people who do not have wealth, the people who maybe don't have support systems in New York and LA, says Ramsey, those are the people who we need to fight for and more often than not those people are coming from marginalized identities including black people. After the death of George Floyd, film and television executives started greenlighting more projects featuring black characters and other marginalized communities, but Ramsey says that didn't equate to paying the writers fairly. If you're hiring marginalized writers, black writers, queer writers, but you're not giving them the financial support to keep a roof over their head, says Ramsey, then it's meaningless to say we're supporting diverse stories. It's clearly about money, not uplifting diverse voices, she says. Quote, in reality, you want to profit off diverse stories uh, while not giving us a piece of the pie, and we're pouring ourselves into that and making these CEOs in Hollywood millionaires the dreaded Hollywood mini-rooms. One aspect of the strike that might be hard to understand from the outside is the drama surrounding mini-rooms. These are smaller versions of full-sized writers' rooms used before a show has been greenlit. And the union wants some serious limits placed on them. I had a mini-room for a project at Comedy Central for twelve weeks, says Ramsay. What essentially happens is you can work for 10-12 weeks on a project at a lower rate, and then there's no guarantee that your show will even go to air. Ramsey explains that unless your show gets picked up, you're more or less screwed. If your show doesn't go to air, you are kind of stalled in your career, she says. Oftentimes writers go up to a year between jobs, so you've now essentially put time into a project but no one's going to see it, it is not on your resume, and didn't pay you a lot of money. What do the network executives have to say? The major networks, represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, AMPTP, told The route that they're happy to offer a more favorable deal once the WGA backs off of some of their sticking points. Ramsey doesn't buy it. The whole purpose of negotiation is that the two parties come to the table with a number of options and there's always going to be some level of give and take she says Pardon me but the AMPTP did not do that on a number of our requests they refused to even engage they rejected certain pardon me certain proposals outright and they didn't even counter And that is the opposite of what a negotiation is. Part of the frustration for Ramsey is that the networks are the ones who made the decision to pivot to streaming, and now they're falling back on it as the reason they can't pay workers a fair wage. The industry has changed, she said, but it's changed because they decided that it was going to change. We are not to be blamed for that, and we should not be punished for that, while the CEOs are rewarded for our work. also from The Root, written by Jessica Washington, published on the 3rd. The U.S. is on the brink of a financial crisis. Black Americans should be concerned. The U.S. Treasury Secretary said that the U.S. could run out of money as soon as June 1st. Here's why black Americans should care. Not to be dramatic, but hearing the news that the United States could be on the brink of a financial disaster in a few weeks was not exactly how we'd hoped to kick off the new month. On Monday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that the United States could run out of money to meet our obligations as soon as June 1st. That means for the first time in our country's history, we could end up defaulting on our debt, which is a big problem if you enjoy not being in the midst of another Great Recession. Despite knowing for months that the United States had officially hit the debt ceiling, which is 31.4 trillion dollars, we still don't have a deal to raise the limit. For folks wondering why that's such a problem, We'll break it down as simply as possible. The debt limit is the amount of money the federal government can borrow to meet their existing funding obligations, including Medicare, Social Security, and loan payments. Congress regularly votes to increase this limit so we can borrow more and keep paying our bills, including our national debt. So far, the United States has never defaulted on our loans, but that will happen if we don't raise the debt limit. It's not so different from when a regular person defaults on their loans, only on a much bigger and more complex scale. Our credit rating would fall, potentially triggering a deep recession. And because the global economy is so intimately tied to our economy, if we default, we risk, not only plunging ourselves into a severe recession, but we could also tank the global economy. Why should black people care what happens with the debt limit? Unfortunately, this isn't the kind of crisis black Americans can afford to ignore. A deep recession would, in all likelihood, be devastating for black Americans, Studies have shown that Black Americans are generally among the first groups to be laid off when unemployment is high and the slowest demographic to recover after a recession. Black Americans would also be disproportionately harmed if the government can no longer fully fund social welfare programs, including Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Just take Social Security, for example. A 2017 study found that 35% of elderly married black couples and 58% of unmarried black older adults relied on Social Security for 90% or more of their income. What is going on in Congress with the debt limit? At this point you're probably wondering why Congress hasn't already raised the debt ceiling. The answer is simple politics. House Republicans recently passed a bill to raise the debt limit. However, They included a bunch of spending cuts and new work requirements for people receiving government benefits, including food programs such as SNAP. The bill is unlikely to go anywhere since President Joe Biden is currently pushing for Congress to raise the limit without extracting any concessions. However, there is still hope that we can avoid a crisis point in the next few weeks. On Tuesday House Democrats led by Representative Hakeem Jeffries Democrat New York enacted a plan to try to force Republicans to raise the debt limit. Democrats plan to use an archaic procedural process known as a discharge petition which would allow them to get around Republican opposition to raising the debt limit without spending cuts. House Democrats are working to make sure we have all options at our disposal to avoid pardon me, avoid a default, wrote Rep. Jeffries in a letter he sent to colleagues on Tuesday, which was obtained by the New York Times. He went on, the filing of a debt ceiling measure to be brought up on the discharge calendar preserves an important option. It is now time for MAGA Republicans to act in a bipartisan manner to pay America's bill without extreme conditions. The measure is undeniably a long shot, but with the threat of economic disaster mere weeks away, a Hail Mary pass is better than nothing. To the black history haters, see the new statue of Emmett Till's mama. In Illinois, a statue honoring Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, was erected at her alma mater. This was published on the 3rd and written again by Jessica Washington, reading from the com. Far too often our history books diminish the roles of powerful black women. In some retellings, Rosa Parks was just an older woman who wanted to sit on the bus, not a movement leader engaging in radical civil, pardon me, civil disobedience. Coretta Scott King was merely a dutiful wife, not a civil rights leader in her own right and Mamie Till Mobley was just a grieving mother, not an activist who sparked a movement. Now, Till Mobley, whose decision to let the world see her son, Emmett Till's open casket, fueled the civil rights movement, is beginning to take her rightful place in our history. Over the weekend, Argo Community High School unveiled a massive statue honoring Till Mobley, the school which Till Mobley attended, Is right outside of Chicago where Till Mobley and Emmett Till lived. While many people know Till Mobley because of Emmett Till, after his death, she continued to fight for the civil rights movement. What happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of all of us, she once told a crowd as she toured the nation fighting for equal rights. The 850-pound statue, which depicts Till Mobley giving a speech, also includes a photo of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered by two white men who were never convicted. A quote from Till Mobley hovers just above the photo of her son. It says, We are only given a certain amount of time to do what we were sent here to do. You don't have to be around a lifetime to share the wisdom of a lifetime. There is no time to waste. For Emmett Till's living family members, the tribute is incredibly touching. The effect of this memorial speaks volumes to the race issue in America. The Emmett Till and Maybe Till Mobley walkway represents a welcome home to Emmett that he was not able to experience in life, said Reverend Wheeler, Jr., Emmett's cousin. In a statement, he went on, and as a beacon of hope that change is possible. The fact that the statue is outside of Argo Community High School is symbolically meaningful, says Chris Benson, president of the Till Institute. Till Mobley, a talented academic, was the first African-American student at the high school to make the honor roll. Not only does the statue represent an incredibly accurate likeness But it also represents a source of inspiration for generations at the gateway to the school where Mother Mobley was an honor student, said Benson. As a teacher for more than two decades, Mother Mobley considered her leadership in education as a high form of activism, preparing students for future challenges armed with the understanding of the sacrifices that had been made, pardon me, that had made it possible for them to succeed. The death of Carolyn Bryant, the white woman whose accusations against Emmett Till led to his death, brought the young boy's murder back into the spotlight, but this weekend's unveiling hopefully brings a positive light to the story of a black woman who turned her grief into action. It is difficult to express how we feel about the great honor Argo High School and the village of Summit have bestowed on Emmett Till and his courageous mother, Mamie Mamie Till Mobley, said Dr. Marvel Parker, executive director of the Till Institute. This beautiful statue stands as a memorial to her legacy of activism and her courage to let the world see what happened to her son. Next, a slightly older article from the New York Times. This was published April 26th, written by Christina Morales. Emily Meggett, matriarch of Gullah Geechee cuisine, is dead at 90. She never used a recipe in cooking, but she published a best selling cookbook that documented the Gullah Geechee food of the coastal South. Emily Meggett, a southern home cook who never measured her ingredients or used recipes, but became one of America's most important Gullah Geechee cooks and last year published a best-selling cookbook on Gullah Geechee cuisine, died on Friday at her home in Edisto Island, South Carolina. She was 90. Her daughter, Laverne Meggett, said she died after a short illness. Mrs. Meggett had been cooking for nearly 80 years before Gullah Geechee home cooking recipes from the matriarch of Edisto Island was published in April of last year, the first high-profile cookbook centered on the food of the descendants of the enslaved people of the Coastal South. She had collaborated with a mostly black team to create the book. She left us with a lifetime of work that was overlooked and undervalued for years, said Kayla Stewart, the book's co-author. (Miss Miss Stewart has written for the New York Times, and went on. She really moved the needle in terms of how we're talking about Gullah Geechee cuisine and culture. Gullah Geechee Home Cooking became a New York Times bestseller last July and on Wednesday was nominated for a 2023 James Beard Book Award in the category of U.S. Foodways. Emily Hutchinson Meggett was born on November 19, 1932 and raised on Adisto Island southwest of Charleston as were her parents and grandparents. Her lineage traced back to enslaved Africans who worked along the Gullah Geechee corridor, a collection of small coastal communities from North Carolina to North Florida. Mrs. Meggett's family and other enslaved people held on to some of their traditions and adopted new ones, forging a culture known as Gullah Geechee and a Creole language. Mrs. Meggett grew up in the Jim Crow South and began her career cooking for white families who kept homes on Adisto, following a tradition with a fraught and complicated history. She wrote in the book, Many black women paved the way for cooks like me to find a career that could support my family and give me the chance to do something I'm good at. As Laverne Meggett put it, She endured it and she made it. Her cookbook included 123 recipes created over a lifetime of cooking for her own large family, her church, and the families she worked for. The book, true to Gullah Geechee cuisine, focused on rice, seafood, and fresh local vegetables, but it also featured one-pot African recipes like chicken purloo and okra soup. Other dishes like pot roast, stuffed bell peppers, and broccoli with cheese sauce she acquired while cooking for white families. Mrs. Meggett learned to cook from her maternal grandmother, Rosa Major Doctor, who raised her. Recipes were handed down orally without the guidance of measurements or written instructions. For two months while she worked on the book, Miss Stewart learned to cook that way under Mrs. Meggett's guidance. Making complex dishes like a stuffed shad—pardon me, stuffed shad—which they deboned, filled with parsley rice, and sewed shut—a two-day project. But it took years for the book to come to fruition. It started in 1994 when Mrs. Meggett began cooking for the family of Becky Smith, who summered on Adisto Beach. Mrs. Smith repeatedly encouraged Mrs. Meggett to write a book and the two developed a close friendship. Mrs. Smith pulled out measuring cups and spoons to record the amount of ingredients that Mrs. Meggot used as she cooked, and she recorded her stories. Mrs. Smith said in a phone interview, I never wanted to forget the things she told me because she changed me. Mrs. Meggot always gave to people in need and had strong religious faith. She drove around with a pot of food in her car, and asked God to lead her to people who needed help," Mrs. Smith recalled. Everyone knew that if her kitchen door was open, anyone could stop by for food, including a couple of tourists who, after reading Mrs. Meggett's cookbook, drove to Adisto from Texas last year. Mrs. Meggett served them shrimp and grits. Mrs. Meggett and Mrs. Smith worked on the cookbook together over the years. During the pandemic, Mrs. Smith's son, Elliot, edited the manuscript. He asked B.J. Dennis, a Gullah chef in Charleston, for his feedback. A few weeks before the Smiths and Mrs. Meggett were going to publish the book themselves, a literary agent asked Mr. Dennis if he was interested in writing a book. He suggested that the first book on Gullah Geechee cuisine should be Mrs. Meggett's. At first, Ms. Meggett didn't like the idea because it would take much longer to publish. I thought it would be, pardon me, I thought I would be dead and gone because of COVID by 2022, she told the New York Times in an interview last year, but I prayed about it and said, let's do it. Her life story was woven throughout the book published by Abrams. Her parents, Lara V. Hutchinson and Isaiah Flood, were sharecroppers. In 1951, she married Jesse Meggett, who maintained roads and worked at a grocery store. He liked grits for breakfast and rice with dinner, but the toppings always varied, Laverne Meggett said. The couple had ten children. In addition to her daughter Laverne, Mrs. Meggett is survived by seven other children, Christopher Hutchinson, Mildred Hayward, Elizanne Mack, Louise Meggett, Carolyn Goodwin, Elizabeth Jones, and Marvette Meggett. A stepson, Ronald Bailey, her brother, Cornelius Thrower, and more than 65 grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, Mr. Meggett died in 2006. Cooking was her life, Laverne Meggett said, adding, she has impacted people's lives throughout the world with her story about her upbringing and where she came from. She also taught her children and some of her grandchildren to cook dishes like red rice and shrimp and gravy with grits, just as she did, by feel and not with recipes. Their large family gatherings always centered on food, like Thanksgiving turkey stuffed with cornbread dressing, which she taught Laverne to make when Laverne was ten. My mom always felt that food brings people together, regardless of who you are, said Laverne. Next coming from the New York Times Race-Related section, published April 29th. There are some shorts here. Art Institutions Embrace Change by Jane Blackburn Bornemeyer. As the editors for special sections plan our large and popular museums and fine arts and exhibits sections in the spring and fall each year, we think about themes that will help us assign the most meaningful articles. Art institutions are reacting creatively to the challenges they face in attracting new audiences and remaining relevant to existing ones. Among the subjects we covered in this 48-page print and extensive digital section were several strong examples of how race and ethnicity play a role in new exhibitions now on view or coming soon. The Ammon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth and the Chazen Museum of Art at the University of Wisconsin-Madison are conveying new approaches in response to the controversies across the United States over statues related to the Civil War era. The exhibitions coincide with the 160th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. At the Carter, the exhibition titled Emancipation, the Unfinished Project of Liberation has its genesis in an intriguing premise. What if a famous artwork, in this case the sculptor John Quincy Adams Wards titled The Freedman" from 1863 is so historically fraught that it requires an entirely new cultural and aesthetic interpretation for the current era. At the Chazen, Sanford Biggers, an acclaimed New York-based contemporary artist, and Amy Gilman, the director of the Chazen, have created an exhibition that reinterprets a statue in the museum's collection by Thomas Ball that depicted Abraham Lincoln standing tall his outstretched arm hovering over a freed enslaved person who crouches semi-nude at his feet. The result is their current exhibition titled Re colon emancipation. Another article recounts how museums large and small are doing more to focus on local communities which are often diverse but haven't seen different cultures reflected in the art that is displayed. There is a widespread effort by museums of all types, particularly smaller museums, to increase their audiences both in the number of people and the racial and ethnic diversity. Laura Lott, chief executive of the, pardon me, chief executive of the American Alliance of Museums, said in an interview for that article, she went on, "They recognize that there are people in many cases who haven't felt included." We also spoke to Jessica Ware the first black person to hold a tenured curatorial position at the American Museum of Natural History in New York to get her perspective on what diversity can mean to a museum. She is an expert on insects, which will be the basis for a major exhibition at the museum's Richard Gilder Center for Science Education and Innovation on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Dr. Ware wants to attract more people of color to entomology and has helped create a collective in support of that goal. The Walker Art Center in Minneapolis has the world's first retrospective of the work of the artist Pasita Abad. It brings together work from throughout Ms. Abad's 32-year career, reflecting the vibrancy and textures of diasporic diasporic life. Abad was born and raised in the Philippines to a large, politically active family. In her lifetime, she created more than 5,000 works of art. At the heart of her life's work are trapuntos, maximalist hanging textiles embroidered with mirrors from India, cowrie shells from Papua New Guinea, beaded fabric from Indonesia, buttons from the Philippines, and other travel-gathered bricolage. The varied backgrounds of these artists and their resulting works of art highlight the nuanced ways—pardon me, nuanced ways—they see the world, and bring those powerful perspectives to viewers. I clicked on the link that describes her cooperative for entomologists. Read a little bit about that. It is found at www.intopac.org. E-N-T-O-P-O-C. We were challenged by hashtag strike for black lives and hashtag shut down STEM to spend June 10th, 2020, working on ways to further support people of color, POC, in STEM. Reading hashtag black in the ivory tweets about POC experim- pardon me, experiences in STEM inspired us to take action As a group, we strive to increase access to STEM education for POC, young and old. Access to education can create long-lasting and far-reaching effects to communities. We are starting an initiative to increase participation of POC in scientific societies. Recently, statistics about the drastically low number of people of color in ecology and evolution were highlighted. Similarly, that was in graves from 2019. Similarly, for entomology, we know that the numbers of POC graduate students is low compared to the number of POC in the general population. For example, the NSF reports that of graduate students in entomology and parasitology, only 2.3% are black, 4.8% are Hispanic, Latinx, and 0.17% are Pacific Islander. For graduate students in general, the cost of membership to scientific organizations may be a barrier to participation. Our group, Entomologists of Color, strives to close this gap by providing POC paid memberships to various entomological societies, making participation, scientific communication, and outreach more inclusive. Why focus on society memberships? By sponsoring a membership, you are providing an entomology student of color with STEM resources and community activities that will help them become lifelong entomology-ophiles. Membership to scientific societies allows participation in networking events, provides access to scientific publications and other member-restricted scientific content, and reduced meeting costs, all necessary tools for a successful career. Thanks to the outpouring of support from donations, we far exceeded our initial goal of $5,000 and have raised more than $13,000. Furthermore, we would like to thank the various entomological and arachnological societies for providing additional free memberships for BIPOC students. Finally, we're extremely excited to announce that 40 recipients of the INTOPOC memberships will be attending the Entomology 2020 virtual meeting. Each student will be grouped with an Entomology mentor, both of whom will attend seminars, talks, and poster sessions together. That was their mission statement. On their website, there are ways to donate and learn more. And I clicked on their scientist of the month to read about one person. Comes from September 2021, Jared Dyer. Jared Dyer is a second year master's student at the Berg Lab in Virginia Tech. He is investigating the foraging ecology of the samurai wasp, an important natural enemy of brown marmorated stink bug, an invasive agricultural pest. Through understanding how this parasitic wasp locates egg hosts, Jared hopes to optimize current sampling tools to better track the spread and growth of future samurai wasp populations. Jared is also deeply passionate about storytelling in science and cultivating curiosity about the natural world. And more from the natural world, this next article comes from The Guardian and was posted April 23rd Champion of the Gorillas The Vet Fighting to Save Uganda's Great Apes Under the watchful and resourceful eye of award-winning conservationist Gladys Kalema Zikusoko Uganda's threatened mountain gorilla population has made an impressive recovery, as has the local community. The Buwindi impenetrable forest is tucked away in a remote corner of southwest Uganda, meaning place of darkness. In the Runyakitara language, this dense Mist swathed rainforest makes for a good hiding place for half of the world's remaining mountain gorillas. The other half, which the American primatologist Diane Fossey so famously befriended, live in Rwanda's Volcanoes National Park. And a moment to say this was written by Fleur Britton, originally for The Observer. These majestic but shy creatures whose existence now generates about 60% of Uganda's tourism revenue like to hide, especially when they know veterinarian intervention is afoot. The gorillas are always outsmarting the humans. If they see someone carrying a dart gun for sedation, vaccinations, medicine, etc., they'll walk backwards so as not to expose their backs, where the darts need to land. They also like to mock charge at humans, stopping suddenly to indicate they mean no harm, yet leaving no doubt as to who holds the power. And if they're really not feeling the presence of humans, they'll outright charge at you. If the silverback charges, no one will be able to visit that group says the award-winning Ugandan wildlife vet and conservationist, Dr. Gladys Kalema-Zikusoka via Zoom from her home in Entebbe, which she shares with her husband Lawrence and sons Nindego 18 and Tendo 14. In order for him to accept humans, you have to stay very calm. Keep your voice down and avoid eye contact. That's how it should be with wildlife they should be in charge. We're here to discuss the 53-year-old's forthcoming memoir titled Walking with the Gorillas, The Journey of an African Wildlife Vet, a humbling account of a life dedicated to the survival of the Windy's endangered gorillas and their human neighbors. You may have not heard of Kalema Zikusoka, but the books Forward by Dr. Jane Goodall gives some indication of her status in the conservation world. It is hardly surprising that this remarkable woman has been the recipient of countless awards and prizes," writes Gadal. In 2021 she was named the UN Environment Program's Champion of the Earth and last year won the Edinburgh Medal, pardon me, that's Edinburgh Medal for her contribution to science. She has made a huge difference to conservation in Uganda. That difference has largely been achieved through gentle tenacity and impressive networking skills. Even since her student days, Kalema Zikusoka introduced herself to Godal as an undergraduate at the Royal Veterinary College in London after attending one of her talks. And when she realized her dream job didn't exist, while still at RVC, she wrote to the person who might be able to create it, the head of Ugandan National Parks, to say she wanted to become its vet. And so, in 1996, aged 26, Kalema Zikusoka became Uganda's first-ever wildlife vet. At this point, there were only about 300 windy gorillas left in the forest. After nearly three decades of tending to them, She now estimates a total of about 500. The last census in 2018 counted 459, enough to downgrade the mountain gorilla from critically endangered to endangered. It's an achievement that has prompted invitations to sit on numerous international conservation boards, including the Diane Fossey-founded Gorilla Organization, for which she volunteered while at RVC stuffing envelopes late into the night," says its executive director, Jillian Miller. Since the late 1990s, Kalemizu Kusoka has been a trailblazer of community conservation, notes Miller, at a time when most conservationists took a top-down, colonial approach. Gladys was a natural at getting the support of local people. Born in Kampala, Uganda in 1970, As the youngest of six siblings, Kalema Zikusoka grew up against the backdrop of Idi Amin's military dictatorship. Age two, her father, William Wilberforce Kalema, a former cabinet minister under President Obote, was abducted and murdered by Amin's soldiers. For her safety, Kalema Zikusoka was sent to boarding school from the age of seven, variously in Uganda, Kenya, and the UK and in the 1980s, her mother, Rhoda Kalema, now 93, became one of Uganda's first female members of parliament for the Ugandan patriotic movement. That was not without danger either. She was arrested three times and once jailed for her politics. The legacy of both parents, enduring many hardships, is, writes Kalema Zukusoka in Walking with Gorillas, what inspired her to dig deep to find my courage. As a child, though, animals were her escape from the cloud of terror, and she'd retreat to the strays turned pets that her, o- pardon me, her older siblings brought home. By the age of 12, her heart was set on becoming a vet, not a respected vocation in Uganda. She explains in her memoir, she said, People don't place much value on pets in a developing country with so much human suffering. After a school safari trip, where she saw how Amin's rule had decimated Uganda's animal populations, she knew wildlife veterinary practice was her calling. Her first encounter with a wild gorilla at 24 was a life-changing experience, and not just for that heart-pounding moment of deep connection with one of our closest cousins, quotes, as she writes, she had volunteered for a Ugandan study while at RVC, collecting Buendi gorilla feces, and discovered that gorillas visited by tourists carried a greater parasitic burden. She recalls, what struck me was how similar we were to each other, and yet we are putting their lives at risk. She was speaking from a sparsely decorated study in which she wrote her memoir. She went on, we had to do something about it. That light bulb moment has guided her work ever since. When you improve the health of humans, you improve the health of the animals, she explains. This holistic approach to conservation, of which Kalima Zikusoka was an early advocate, is now known as One Health. It's why you won't find any cozy photos of Kalima Zikusoka cuddling wild gorillas like Fossi and Attenborough. Unless veterinary treatment is required, she and her team of rangers, porters and trackers, maintain a distance of ten meters from the gorillas. Sharing ninety eight point four percent of our DNA with them means we can easily make each other sick with zoonotic diseases. Those transmitted between animals and people, such as COVID, TB, and scabies. Even in 2011, she was encouraging tourists to wear masks on gorilla treks, and during the pandemic, went to great lengths, including lobbying the Ugandan government for priority testing for Bwindi people to ensure none of the mountain gorillas caught that virus, and they didn't. Another zoonotic pandemic is inevitable, sadly, says Kalima Zikusoka, whose expertise led her, pardon me, led to her appointment on the WHO's Special Advisory Group for the Origin of Novel Path- Pathogens, pardon me again, which was founded in 2021 to determine the source of COVID and prevent the next pandemic. It's inevitable, she explains, quote, because we are disrupting wild animals' habitats so much. As observed with the Buendi gorillas, when you destroy habitats, those animals will go into people's gardens. Mountain gorillas, by the way, find backyard banana plants irresistible, and the ensuing proximity to humans enables diseases to jump back and forth between species. While the next zoonotic pandemic could be caused by avian influenza, she thinks it will probably be caused by another coronavirus. It's the worst kind of virus. As a respiratory illness, it's highly contagious, but the majority of people don't die, so it just keeps going and going, and it's able to mutate, she says. Given the great apes' sensitivity to human disease, is gorilla tourism really in their best interests? It's complicated. Kalima Zikusoka sees tourism as a necessary evil. It's true, she writes, that habituated gorillas, those accustomed to humans, are more vulnerable to disease and poaching. And yet, pardon me, the mountain gorilla, where there is a thriving tourism industry, is the only gorilla subspecies whose population is growing. What about the local community's best interests? There are about 100,000 people living in parishes bordering the National Park. Well, it could go either way. It has over the years. After the Buwendi mountain gorilla was discovered in 1987, the early days of Uganda's gorilla tourism triggered a messy, vicious cycle. As the gorillas lost their fear of humans, quote, they'd go into people's gardens and catch human diseases. Meanwhile, driven by poverty, villagers would head into the forest to chop down wood and lay snares for bush pigs and duiker, a kind of antelope, which led to loss of habitat, gorillas being snared and people getting sick from diseased bushmeat. Plus, the locals grew resentful of gorilla tourism, knowing how much Westerners were paying and that none of it benefited them. Through Kalima Zikusoka's many bridge-building interventions, that vicious cycle has been transformed into a virtuous one, with several programs being expanded to other parts of Uganda and beyond. In 2003 she founded Conservation Through Public Health (CTPH), an NGO through which she could fundraise and still run One Health programs in buwindi She recruited her husband, a Ugandan telecoms entrepreneur whom she'd met while studying for her masters at North Carolina State University, as treasurer, and her former research assistant, Stephen Rubanga as secretary. CTPH now has 35 employees. Instead of parachuting outsiders in, local volunteering has been key to its success. This empowers the Bwindi people and encourages them to be stewards of their own environment. To keep gorillas away from the bananas, Kalima Zukusoka founded the Gorilla Guardians. Local volunteers to herd gorillas back to the national park. 20 years on, Bawindi's 119 gorilla guardians are a source of pride to the community, she says. And I'm going to have to cut this article off due to lack of time, but I will save it and hopefully get back to finishing this in a week or two. Thank you. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining us. This was Black Experience Hour. And this final article once again was about Gladys Kalema-Zikusoka, an award-winning conservationist in Uganda. Programming from AINC is made possible from funding from the City of Thornton Community Development Block Grant. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at